thought I'd begin the message with a story. Perhaps you're familiar with Corrie ten Boom. Uh, she lived her life during World War II, and uh, she was in Holland, and her, uh, she and her sister, uh, sister Betsy, were Christians. And during that war, they would uh, hide Jewish people in their home to keep the Nazis from getting to them. Uh, and they did this until they themselves were found by the Nazis, and the two of them were put into a concentration camp to work there and die. Unfortunately, uh, Corey's sister Betsy did die there in one of those camps, uh, but Corey lived on. Uh, she made it out, and after the war, she became a traveling uh, evangelist, ministering the Word of God and uh, preaching uh, the Bible. And then something amazing happened. One time after she was preaching, uh, somebody came up to her after the message, and he was a German soldier. She recognized him. As he approached, uh, she realized that he was in the same camp she was in. As you might guess, Corey was filled with all sorts of emotions in that moment. I mean, could you just imagine being her, wondering what she would say to this man? Uh, the Nazi soldier walked up to her and said this, quote, since the war, I became a Christian. I have realized the horrible things that I did to people, and I want to say to you, I'm sorry. I need to ask you for your forgiveness. Can you just picture the scene? Here she is, she's faced with a, a person who is at least partially responsible for her own sister's death. And Corey said in her book, I stood there wondering what I was going to say for what seemed to me like an eternity. Have you ever been really wronged in your life? I think we all have. Uh, we can all remember offenses against us that still make our pulse beat a little faster, whether they happened a long time ago or, or recently, whether they were big or whether they were small or uh, whether it was someone that we knew or, or a complete stranger or whether it was uh, out on the ball field or uh, in the boardroom. Uh, the question in our passage today is how can we learn to forgive others as God has forgiven us? For most of us, probably the moment I put that question on the screen, you uh, had a face uh, come into your mind and you began to maybe even rehearse the memory of uh, what that person did to you and how badly they hurt you. And so who is it for you? Who is at the other end of your resentment? Maybe a family member, maybe mom or dad, uh, maybe a friend, maybe a coworker. As we look at this passage today, uh, would you just keep that person in your mind? And um, you should be able to think of someone. In fact, if you can't think of someone, would you come on up here and preach this message for me because you're a lot farther along than I am. Let me get personal for a moment. For the longest time for me, the answer to that question was one of my stepfathers. He was in our family for 16 long and, may I say, miserable years. Sparing you the ugly details, the things that he said and did were just not okay. He was an angry man. And when he would go off, you didn't want to be around him because it could get pretty bad. One day after uh, the cops came for the last time and the final restraining order was placed, he left and he never came back. And I was relieved. In fact, I never saw him again. 
Uh, the only reason I even heard of him was that years later I found out that he had died a few months, a few months earlier, and there wasn't even a funeral for him. And so for me, there was no sense of closure, there was no sense of uh, restoration, nothing. And, and I thought about that, and I thought, man, what was the point of all of that? I lived with this man for the majority of my upbringing, and then just like that, poof, he's gone, leaving behind only painful memories. And so this topic today is, is not theoretical or abstract. You know, it's personal for most of us. How can we learn to forgive? And why is this so hard for me and perhaps for us? Why do we hold on to our hurt and resentment and our bitterness? It's not a simple question, right? Because what if they're not even sorry? What, what if there's no remorse? What if there's a pattern of wrong behavior? What do we do then? What does God want for us? Does he expect us to, to just get taken advantage of over and over and over? How can we let these kinds of things go? How can we learn to forgive? That's what Matthew chapter 18 is all about. If you have a copy of God's word, you can turn there. I'll also put the verses on the screen for you. Here in Matthew chapter 18, Jesus has been teaching about what his church uh, will look like, what his community of followers is going to be like. And one of those characteristics, one of those qualities, is the quality of forgiveness. And so we're going to look at a famous parable today, the parable of the unmerciful servant. And we're going to see three parts to the message. Uh, we're going to see the big question, the bigger king, and the key to unlock the prison. The big question, the bigger king, and the key to unlock the prison. First, the big question, and it's a revealing question. It comes, once again, from the disciple that we've heard a lot about in the last few messages, that guy, Peter. Uh, take a look in verse 21. It says this, Then Peter came to Jesus and asked, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother or sister who sins against me? Up to seven times? Now, the context here is important because right before this passage, Jesus has just said that if anybody sins against you, I want you to go after them and pursue reconciliation with them, not just once, not just twice, three times, and keep on going. At that point, Peter can't take it anymore. Peter actually pulls the Lord Jesus aside and says, can we talk? How many times are we supposed to go through this? In other words, aren't there some limits here, Jesus? Can you please be more realistic with us? How about seven times? Does that be good enough? Scholars disagree as to why Peter said seven. Some people say he took the passage earlier in Matthew 18, where it appears there's a pattern of three times, uh, took that, doubled it, add one, and said, how about that, Jesus? Sound good? Other scholars say that uh, perhaps because there's another place in the Gospel of Luke where Jesus said you should forgive your brother seven times when he sins against you, maybe he's quoting Jesus back to him. Either way, Jesus says, Peter, you're way off. Verse 22, Jesus answered, I tell you not seven times, but 77 times. Some of your Bible translations might say 70 times Seven, the Greek's really just not that clear. I think 70 times seven is probably correct. Now, I know some of you are math people and you're thinking, okay, well, that's 490 times. And so uh, what do I do on time number 491? Well, I guess they're out of luck. You can go ahead and kill them right there on the spot at that point. Now, <laughs> I think we're missing the point here. This idiom doesn't come across real well in our culture, uh, but when the Bible uses this term 70 times 7, uh, it is symbolic, and really what it means is uh, times without number or an unlimited amount of times. 
it's very interesting that the first time those two numbers are put together goes all the way back to the book of Genesis, and coincidentally, the passage actually has to do with vengeance. Let me remind you of Genesis chapter 4. Lamech said to his wives, Ada and Zillah, if you're looking for a good name for your daughter, there you go, Ada and Zillah, uh, listen to me, wives of Lamech, hear my words. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for injuring me. If Cain is avenged seven times, then Lamech 77 times. See, the context here is Lamech saying, if anybody wrongs me, I will get my revenge. Don't mess with me. My vengeance knows no limits. When somebody injured Lamech, he didn't go talk to them about it or seek reconciliation. He didn't try to forgive them. No, Lamech says, vengeance is mine. I will repay. He doesn't get mad. He gets even. Now, do you see what Jesus is saying to Peter? Lamech said, it's total revenge. Jesus said, it's total restoration. Lamech said, it's total payment. Jesus said, it's totally free. Lamech said, I get what I want. Jesus said, no, you give what I want. Lamech's words to his wives are, Ada, Zilha, listen to me, wives of Lamech, hear my words. But Jesus' words to us, his bride, is this, church, People of God, listen to me. Wife of the only perfect husband, hear my words. I've been killed because you wound each other. My father didn't injure me. He gave me hell. He has avenged your wrong on me, not just seven times, but it was an infinite punishment. And now your debt has been canceled. And so now I want you to treat others how I have treated you. Not with revenge, but with forgiveness. See, Jesus knows us. And he knows that if we have somebody in our debt, it gives us a sense of power. Because then we've got the upper position in the relationship. We feel superior. We feel entitled. See, when we hold a grudge against someone, it almost gives, gives us a sense of godness. And this is what's so revealing about Peter's big question. Jesus is saying, Peter, you sound just like Lamech. Peter doesn't trust that God will protect him or his people or that God will bring about justice one day. Peter still wants to pick up the sword and take matters into his own hands. See that? In other words, Peter wants to be king. See, when we won't forgiveness, when we won't give forgiveness, that's what we're doing. We're ascending the throne, so to speak. This is why Jesus has to tell him about the bigger king. Now, before we get to the parable about the bigger king, let me just say this. Some of you have been very hurt. I know. And it's not that God is saying in this passage that what matters, what, what happened to you doesn't matter. That's, that's not the spirit of the passage. It's not that God in any way minimizes what's been done to you whatsoever. That, that's not actually what forgiveness is anyway. And so before we get to the bigger king and the parable, let me just explain what biblical forgiveness is not. Number one, biblical forgiveness, forgiving others, is not justifying their actions. When you forgive, you don't have to say things like, well, you know, they were under a lot of stress, or well, you know, they were under a lot of pressure. I certainly don't think they meant for it to come across that way. That, that's actually not forgiving them, that's excusing them. 
and that's something very different. Number two, forgiveness is, is not just about the passage of time. Have you heard that myth that time heals all wounds? I hear that and I'm thinking, what, what world do you live in? I talk to people that are nursing wounds from 20, 30 years ago. I don't know about you, but I, I found in my life that the passage of time comes alone. It comes all by itself. It's what you do during that time that might make forgiveness possible. Forgiveness is not just about the passage of time. Number three, uh, forgiveness is, is not about denying that you are hurt. Ah, oh, no problem, it didn't hurt. That didn't matter, I didn't even notice anything, it didn't affect me, I didn't even feel it. I'm not upset, I forgive and forget. Well, ladies and gentlemen, apart from amnesia, I'm not really too sure how it's possible to actually forget. I don't think forgiveness is forgetting. In fact, I would argue that forgiveness is remembering and acknowledging and then having the courage uh, to move on. Forgiveness is not about denial. Let me just talk to the guys for a second because we're really good at this. Guys especially love to deny that something hurt because we like to appear tough. We're rugged. Nobody hurt me. I'm not hurt. No, I didn't feel a thing. But you know, the truth is it did hurt and it did make me angry and that's okay. And actually the Bible says that's okay. In fact, Paul says in Ephesians chapter four, be angry and sin not. But don't forget the first part, be angry. Because some things in life are, are worth getting angry about and denying that you're angry doesn't really help anything because you're just gonna stuff it down and explode later. So forgiveness is not about denial. And then fourthly, lastly, forgiveness is not the same as reconciliation. This is a huge misunderstanding. Forgiveness doesn't necessarily mean the relationship is restored. It doesn't mean that you're not gonna hold them accountable for what they've done. You are. Forgiveness takes one. Reconciliation takes two. It's a two-way street, and as far as God's responsibility toward you, as far as what you are called to do, you are called to clean your side of the street but who knows how they're gonna do on their side of the street. And that's why Romans 12 says, as far as it depends upon you, live at peace with all men. So now that we know what forgiveness is not, with that in mind, let's, let's look at what forgiveness is and why it's so essential for us as Christ followers as we meet this, this bigger king. After Peter asks this question, Jesus tells this famous parable. Let's drop down to verse 23. Jesus says this, Therefore, the kingdom of heaven is like a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. As he began the settlement, a man who owed him 10,000 bags of gold was brought to him. Literally, it says 10,000 talents of gold. Now, I know we don't deal in talents here in our country, but 10,000 talents is a whole lot of money. Uh, to do this calculation, you need to know that back then, one day's wage was one denarius. One talent was 6,000 denarii. And so one talent would be equivalent to about 20 years wages, and that means 10,000 talents would be 200,000 years wages. Um, that's quite a bit. I've heard of debt, but this, this is ridiculous. This is actually a little laughable. I mean, you, gotta, you gotta get the picture. It's not like this guy swiped his credit card at, at Outback Steakhouse a few too many times. It's not like this guy has an expensive coffee habit that he needs to get under control. This is not a few thousand dollars in debt. In debt. This, this is not even a, a few hundred thousand dollars in debt. We're talking millions of dollars in debt, maybe even into the billions. 
There is not a consolidation loan place in the, in the world that would ever take on, take on this guy's case. This guy needed a government bailout. It's not even like he's rich, he's just a servant. And, and the point here that Jesus is making is that he owes something, and it's absolutely astronomical. It would be impossible for him to pay it back. That's the point. Now, what does Jesus mean by this? Now, the question you have to ask whenever you read a parable is, where am I in the parable? Because you're in there. You're usually in there. And the other question you have to ask with the parables is, where is God in the parable? Because he's in there too, usually. In this case, in this parable, God is represented by this king. And, and in this parable, you and me are actually this servant who owes this much money. And the debt that we owe is because of our sin, and we are in way over our heads. I emphasize this because some people think that sin is like no big deal. It's just a little trifling thing. You know, nobody's perfect. Everybody makes mistakes. But sin is not what you think it is. Sin is what God says it is. R.C. Sproul used to say, sin is cosmic treason against the king of the universe. This guy's got a huge debt, and it's very, very significant. Verse 25. It says, since he was not able to pay, the master ordered that he and his wife and his children and all that he had be sold to repay the debt. That's what they did in those days. There was no bankruptcy process. There was no chapter 13. They would sell themselves into a kind of indentured servanthood when they couldn't pay back their debt. And so that included their family as well, everybody, kids and all. Some of you who, who might be in debt are thinking, you know, I could maybe sell a couple kids off. That might help me. <laughs> Just kidding. This was their society, and this guy's getting sold off for how long? For life. Because back then, a, a, a top price for, for a slave was just one talent. That, that wouldn't pay back the debt. And so the master here is actually set, settling for pennies on the dollar. And the point that Jesus is making as he paints this picture for us is this, this guy's desperate. Here he is, he's about to get evicted, he's about to be sold with his family into slavery, and he doesn't want that to happen. And so he begins to beg the king for more time and for mercy. Take a look at verse 26. At this, the servant fell on his knees before him. Be patient with me, he begged, and I will pay back everything. Everything? Really? You think you're going to be able to pay this back? You've got to be kidding me. It reminds me of one time I was talking to a, you know, a junior high kid, and he says, you know, Dave, I'll bet you a million dollars that such and such team is going to win the Super Bowl. I'm like, a million dollars? You got a million dollars? How about five bucks? You want to bet five bucks? This guy doesn't have the ability to pay this, yet he thinks he can't. Here's the point Jesus is making now. If I think I can pay God back for my sin, I'm not only wrong, I'm delusional. I'm nuts. We don't understand how much we owe. And that leads us to make an important point here, friends. There is a subtle kind of pride that creeps in with the sin of unforgiveness, isn't there? There's this condescending attitude of I'm better than that person. I, I would never do what they've done. Or you ever meet somebody who's done something wrong and they say, you know, I know God has forgiven me, but I just can't forgive myself. What are they saying? They're saying, first of all, I know better than God. 
And second of all, I have such a high view of myself that my standard is actually higher than God's standard. At first, that might sound kind of humble, but it's actually not a humble position to take whatsoever. Behind that mask of humility is this ugly pride. And here's this prideful man thinking that he can pay back this debt, but then something amazing happens in verse 27. The servant's master took pity on him, canceled the debt, and let him go. Notice that word canceled there. That's the Greek word, aphiemi. It means to cut off. The debt is canceled. It's paid. It's over. Uh, Lewis Smeads called this a, a spiritual surgery. Somehow he's able to remove the debt from the person. That, that's what God is able to do. And all of a sudden, he gets a clean slate. One of the things I used to love to do in elementary school was write on the blackboard and and whenever the teacher wanted to volunteer to write on the blackboard, I would always go up and raise my hand. And sometimes one of the really neat things that the teacher would let us do is erase the whole blackboard at the end of the day when, when school was over. And she'd let just one student do that each afternoon. And, and what you'd do is you'd not just erase the whole board, but after you were done erasing, you'd go get a wet sponge in a bucket and just sponge off the whole board until all the dust from the whole day was, and it'll just look good as new. That was so fun back then. <laughs> Forgiveness is like a spiritual eraser and sponge. God has the ability to erase my mistakes and wipe them off so I'm perfectly clean and I can start over again. Isn't it amazing that God offers us that kind of forgiveness in our lives? That's exactly what Christ has done. Jesus didn't come to rub it in, he came to rub it out. This is what's happened to me in my sin the debt I owed was gigantic, but now in Christ, my whole debt has been canceled. That's the biblical doctrine of forgiveness. It's amazing, right? And to be specific, our debt didn't just magically disappear. If you think about it, in a sense, somebody always pays the debt. In this case, it was the master who paid the debt, right? The master absorbed the loss. That's exactly what our God has done for us. He absorbed the loss. Let me read to you an excerpt from Puritan author John Flavel called The Father's Bargain. It's this, it's this conversation between the father and the son that hypothetically took place in eternity past where you can imagine the father talking to the son about what they were planning to do. First, the father speaks. My son, here is a company of poor, miserable souls that have utterly undone themselves and now lay open to my justice. The son responds. Oh, my father, such is my love and pity for them. Rather than they shall perish eternally, I will be responsible for them as their guarantee. Bring in all their bills that I may see what they owe you. Bring them all in that there will be no more after reckonings with them. I would rather choose to suffer the wrath that is theirs than they should suffer it. Upon me, Father, upon me be all their debt." The father responds, but son, if you undertake for them, you must reckon to pay the last penny. Son, if I spare them, I will not spare you. The son responds, let it be. Charge it all upon me. Look at this verse in Colossians chapter two. He forgave all our sins having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us, he has taken it away, nailing it 
to the cross. Before we even move on and talk about our forgiveness of others, we have to take a moment and remember how much we have been forgiven. This is so important because the first step in even thinking about forgiving others is remembering how much I have been forgiven first. Remember how much I have been forgiven first. See, maybe one of the reasons it's so hard for me to forgive someone else is because I've forgotten how much I've been, been forgiven by God. How much has God forgiven you? A lot. In fact, just to illustrate, I brought with me today a paper shredder. And let's just imagine that our sin debt is represented in this envelope. And the, the note of our indebtedness fell due, so to speak. And when God saw the note, and when he saw our sin, he sent his son Jesus, and on the cross, he decided... the debt. Isaac Watts said, when I survey the wondrous cross on which the prince of glory died, my richest gain I count but lost and pour contempt on all my pride. He took our debt and shredded it on the cross. The reason this is so important to remember is because John Stott said this, once our eyes have been opened to see the enormity of our offense against God, the injuries which others have done to us appear by comparison extremely trifling. Let's go back to that parable. The king cancels all his debt, which is amazing, but then something really strange happens next in the parable. 28. But when that servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred silver coins. He grabbed him and began to choke him. Pay back what you owe me, he demanded. His fellow servant fell to his knees and begged him, be patient with me and I will pay you back. But he refused. Instead, he went off and had the man thrown into prison until he could pay the debt. Now, a hundred silver coins here would be a hundred denarii. So that's a hundred days wages, which would be about four months pay. In other words, Jesus' point here is that this person's debt is not insignificant. When others wrong you, it's not that it's insignificant that that occurs. The point is that in proportion with what you've already been forgiven by God, it is comparably quite small. And so the point here is the contrast. The point here is the disproportionality. You see that? But notice, despite all of that, it says he refused to show any mercy, very strong language here. The, though he had been shown so much mercy for himself, he, he has this repeated and sustained unwillingness to show mercy on his fellow servant. Actually, it says he's literally choking him, which is appalling behavior, isn't it? Someone who needed such mercy and compassion can turn around and, and choke someone and extend zero mercy to someone who needed far less. The nerve of this guy. I mean, who does he think he is? The level of hypocrisy here is shocking. But yet Jesus is saying, Dave, this is what you look like when you hold grudges toward those who have sinned against you. Let me just show you what it feels like to hold a grudge. Just take your right fist and, and just clench your fist for a few moments while I'm talking. You feel that? 
firm grip. Don't let it go. Just kind of pretend like you're holding your grudge right there in your right hand. Squeeze it. Feel the tense. Feel how tense it feels and how heavy it feels and how weighty it feels, how stressful it is. Not, not so much for them, but for you. What a burden it is to have to carry this kind of thing around. And, and even physicians say if we allow bitterness to run free in our lives, it, studies show it, it manifests itself in some unhealthy ways, even physically, sometimes high blood pressure. and Sometimes it can manifest itself in short temper or or irritability, or sleeplessness, or, or even depression. Okay, now just let it go. That's where this guy is. He's holding that thing as tight as he can, choking this other guy. He won't show any mercy. Well, word gets out about his behavior. Verse 31 says this, when the other servants saw what had happened, they, they were outraged and went and told their master everything that had happened. This was so distressing to those who, who, who were onlookers. They said, we can't believe you're doing this. We gotta go report to the king. And, and it says when they, when they, when they told, that, that word means they explained in detail. And I will bet as they were explaining this to the king, uh, the king's eyes just got bigger and bigger and bigger. The king can't believe what he's hearing. You gotta be, this guy, the same guy, who does he think he is? Now the king is very upset. And he goes out to the man who he had forgiven millions of debt for. And it says this in verse 32. Then the master called the servant in. You wicked servant, he said. I canceled all that debt of yours because you begged me to. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you? In anger, his master handed him over to the jailers to be tortured until he should pay back all he owed. Notice a few things about this section. First, notice the word wicked. That's really interesting because he didn't call him wicked before when he owed all that debt. Before he just showed him mercy, but now he says he's wicked. See, my unforgiveness is not just a, a small, minor little problem. God says, no, it's, it's wicked. The next thing I want you to notice here is that phrase, just as. Do you see that? That's really, really important because this is what makes Christianity so very unique to every other worldview, every other ethical system. If you look at other moral systems, many of those systems actually encourage you to forgive as well. But they say you should just do that because it's the right thing to do. It's just do it because it's right. That's not what Christianity teaches. Christianity teaches that we are to forgive others because that's who we are. That's our identity. That's what our God has done for us. You see the difference? That's the secret. And that's what makes the Lord Jesus so compelling and unique. See, God doesn't say to me, Dave, stop being so bitter and resentful. Just, just stop it. Stop it. No. He says, Dave, think of who you are. Remember what I've done for you. Consider now who lives on the inside of you. And remember what Christ has forgiven you. Just as I have done for you. Go and do likewise. Paul says essentially the same thing in Ephesians chapter four. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ God forgave you. There's that phrase again, just as, those two very important words. And the reason why they're so important is because they take away all of our excuses, don't they? 
It doesn't say forgive because the Bible says so. God says, you forgive because I forgave you. And when Jesus first told this parable to his disciples and they stood around listening, he could have went around the circle and asked them each one by one. Matthew, you remember when we first met? Yes, sir. You remember what you were doing? Yes, sir, I was ripping people off as a tax collector. Do you remember what I said to you? Yes, sir, I do remember. You said, follow me. When nobody wanted anything to do with me, you invited me into your group. In fact, you even came over to my house. Yep, that's right, Matthew. Now, for the rest of your life, the same grace that I showed you, I want you to extend that same grace to everyone you meet. Nathaniel, remember when we met? Yes, sir. Do you remember what you said to me? Nazareth, Nazareth, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Remember how you insulted my people in my town? How did I respond to you? Sir, you never even brought that up. That's right. I invited you in. Now, the same grace that I showed you, I want you to extend that grace to everybody you meet. Peter, not sure where we should start here. You remember when we met? Yes, sir. You, you, do you remember, you remember how you tried to rebuke me? You had, he had, you had the audacity to, to tell me I was wrong in front of the whole group? Do you remember me rejecting you and putting you on the outside? No, sir, that's right. No, I did not. I kept you right by my side, and I always will. Now, that same grace that I showed you, I want you to extend that kind of grace to everyone you meet. Forgive one another just as I have forgiven you. We as Christians are the most forgiven people in the world Therefore, we ought to be the most forgiving people in the world. Forgiveness toward others is just the logical outworking of what Christ has done for me. It's not naive, it's normal. It's, it's not nuts, it's natural. It just makes sense. In your bulletin, here's the point that I think the whole passage is teaching us. When our enormous debt to God has been canceled by Jesus, we have no legitimate excuse to heartlessly to be heartlessly unforgiving to anyone. When our enormous debt to God has been canceled by Jesus, we have no legitimate excuse to be heartlessly unforgiving toward anybody. The only problem is in this parable, this man doesn't understand that. And so he's been thrown into prison. And Jesus adds one more verse just to bring it home. 35, this is how my heavenly father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother or sister from your heart. This is really strong language because unforgiveness is really important to our God. In fact, him, to him, the issue is so big that my forgiveness of others is directly connected to my forgiveness from him. Uh, John Wesley, after he finished preaching on this parable, asked this question of his audience, now where are all the Christians? Where are all the Christians? Now this leads us to, to ask a theological question. What exactly is Jesus teaching here? Is he saying that giving of forgiveness is the ground of my salvation? It, it almost sounds causative here, doesn't it? The answer to that is no. Other scriptures are clear about the, the fact that we're saved by faith alone. But, 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 if you hold unforgiveness towards someone, what that actually shows is that you really don't understand God's forgiveness of you and what it costs God to forgive you in the first place. You see, in this case, the root is so close to the fruit that they're almost inseparable. 
The root, of course, is always your debt being canceled by God. But if you truly understand this, then it will always, always, always bear fruit because you will treat people the way God has treated you. The root and the fruit are inseparable. It's kind of like a strawberry. Uh, the, the red part is the fruit, but there you see the seeds on the outside of the fruit. And when you bite into one, you just, you just get the other. These two things go together. Our forgiveness by God is so closely connected to our forgiveness of other people. And here's the main point that Jesus is making. If you know the king's mercy, you will show the king's mercy. If you know the king's mercy, you will show the king's mercy. Can we say that together? If you know the king's mercy, you will show the king's mercy. One more point. What exactly is this jail Jesus talks about in which the guy is tortured? And this leads us to our third point, the key to unlock the prison. Now, there are some different views on this. Personally, I believe the jail he's talking about here, though, is the jail of our own bitterness. When we choose not to forgive, it's like there's a prison there awaiting us where we will be tortured, but it is self-imposed. It's like we're locked in a prison, but the key is in our own pocket. Forgiveness sets you free. Unforgiveness locks you up. It doesn't really hurt the other person as much as it hurts you. Somebody once said, holding a grudge is like drinking poison, hoping the other guy dies. Now, regarding bitterness, there is a great lie that is perpetuated in our culture that says you have no control over your bitterness. Of course I'm bitter. Look what they did to me. Or even when you look at this passage, we may misinterpret this by thinking God's punishment is that God is the one who's making me bitter. But the truth here is that we are the ones choosing to be bitter. It's not the offense that causes the long-term bitterness, and it's not God who causes our bitterness. It's a sentence we impose on ourselves when we choose not to forgive. Because we actually do have control over the bitterness in our hearts. Jesus says, you have the key to get out of the prison, and it's the key of forgiveness. Now, what does that mean? Let me be very specific about what that means. Peacemaker Ministries does an excellent job explaining that forgiveness actually involves making four promises, and let me go over those with you. Promise number one is this. I promise not to dwell on the incident. I'm not gonna sit around and stew and think about this and roll it around in my mind, and sometimes we like to do that. We relive the situation in like self-pity. Put it aside. Number two, I promise that I'm not gonna bring up this incident and use it against you. It's like the couple who came into the pastor's office and said, you know, pastor, every time we fight, my wife gets historical. And the pastor says, you mean hysterical? No, he said historical. She brings up every single thing that I've ever done wrong. What we're talking about here is, is, is we're, we're putting this aside. And, and I'm not saying, you know, certain things are patterns and, and that's another issue. But when something is passed and it's over and done, it's forgiven, they've apologized, it is time to let it go. Number three. I promise that I will not talk to others about this incident. Gossip is like throwing another log on that fire of bitterness just to keep it burning, but forgiveness puts the fire out. Lastly, number four. I promise I will not allow this incident to stand between us or hinder our personal relationship. So often we say, yeah, I forgive them, but I don't want to do anything with them again. But this promise means on your part, there's actually a real desire for restoration, if possible, in that personal relationship. 
I challenge you, if there's somebody in your life, go to them and say, I'm forgiving you, and say, here's what I mean when I say that. I'm, I'm gonna promise these four things with you. I'm not gonna dwell on this anymore. I'm not gonna bring this up again. I'm not gonna talk to others about this, and I'm not gonna let this stand between you and me. I have forgiven you. Why? Because my Lord Jesus Christ has forgiven me of a debt I could have never paid, and I am commanded to forgive those who have wronged me too. So back to me and my stepfather. I was working on this issue and I needed a therapist to work it through and um, do you remember that guy who was choking the other guy? That's what I was doing. <clears throat> and that's kind of what unforgiveness is. We're so angry at someone, it's like in our minds we're choking them. We're thinking that they're holding back something from us that they have. Why won't you give this to me? But the reality is they just don't have it to give. As my therapist told me, it's like you're trying to buy bread at a hardware store. It's just not in there. They just don't have it to give. And, and I realized that with my stepdad, and I realized I didn't want to hold this against him anymore, and I was expending way too much energy on this issue. And so I actually wrote this letter to him, and one of the things is, that hit me in that moment when I was writing this letter, because I was still struggling with this, is I began to think of all the things I wish me and my stepdad could have done together, but we didn't get to do. And this might sound strange to you, but I think that was the first time I ever thought those thoughts, thinking about what we missed. Not, not what he did, but what we missed. That's a whole other thought pattern. And all of a sudden, I started to experience grief and these big tears started showing up in my eyes as I thought about what we missed together. And when I thought about how much God has forgiven me, my big debt, I, I, I thought about this, this sin that someone else had committed against me, you know, their sin against me. And, and I thought, you know, God, if you can forgive me, I'm gonna forgive him too. In that moment, I forgave my stepdad. Lewis Smedes wrote in Christianity Today, forgiving someone is like setting the prisoner free only to discover the prisoner was you. So let me ask you again, who is it that you need to forgive? Whose bill do you need to shred? Family member, friend? Today I'm just gonna invite you to choose to forgive them because forgiveness, although it's a process, begins with a choice. And as you're thinking about that, let me invite the worship team forward and finish that story with which I began, the story of Corey Temboom. After she was preaching and that German soldier came up to her, Corey wrote about this exact incident in her book, The Hiding Place. And she said at first, she just stood there for what seemed like an eternity. And then she wrote these words. Let me just read them to you. She said, quote, and I stood there with the coldness clutching my heart. But forgiveness is not an emotion. I knew that too. Forgiveness is an act of the will. And the will can function regardless of the temperature of the heart. Help, I prayed silently. I can lift my hand. I can do that much. You, Lord, supply the feeling. And so, woodenly, mechanically, I thrust my hand into the one stretched out to me. And as I did, an incredible thing took place. 
The current started in my shoulder and raced down my arm, sprang into my hands, and then this healing warmth seemed to flood my whole being, bringing tears to my eyes, and I said this, I forgive you, brother, with all my heart. And then she said this, for a long time we grasped each other's hands, the former soldier and the former prisoner. And she said, I had never known God's love like I did that day. Let's pray.